Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick. In the last episode, we discussed the power of dreams to impact the waking world with a particular focus on times and places where the mystique of dreams seems to have held particular sway over prominent intellectual and or theological circles in a given society. So, you know, what what does it mean for a people when the gateway of prophetic dreaming is opened wider, and what factors seem to contribute to these upticks in dream fascination. Mm. In particular, in the last episode, we discussed European Romanticism in the 18th and 19th centuries, as discussed by authors Lynn A. Struve and Jennifer Ford in their respective works. Um, in this episode, we're going to continue looking at some of the times and places that Struve singles out in her 2019 book, The Dreaming Mind and the End of the Ming World, uh, drawing in additional sources as well. Now, I believe the plan is to get into Struve's thoughts on uh, the late Ming Dynasty um, dream culture uh, in part three of this series. But to kick things off here, I thought we might discuss uh, another movement, another time and place that she highlights, and that is Quakerism of the mid-17th century, with religious and political strife in England pushing immigrants out, uh, religious dissenters out of England, and into a new hotbed of religious and political strife in the New World. Now, uh, I don't know, uh, this is definitely one of those cases, uh, and this is going to continue to be the case with some of the examples we draw on. Uh, You know, certainly we would love to hear from anyone out there who has actual roots in Quakerism. I know I have a a cousin 
uh, that uh, that is a Quaker. Uh, so this is very Quakerism still is very much alive, uh, but we're going to be dealing with uh, mid 17th century Quakerism in particular here. Uh, Struve points out that the majority of Puritans of the time period considered Quakerism heretical. Uh, it rejected the traditional Puritan power structure in favor of a meeting structure where anyone in the group could openly share their own account of seeking God through Christ. And accounts of dreams factored into these oral presentations, and sometimes these were written down as well. Uh, Quaker dream testimonials lost much of their prophetic qualities, but continued to be important into the 19th century. So I tried to do some uh, digging to learn a bit more about the role of dreams in Quaker history and the more general historical context. And I came across a lot of references to what looks like a highly relevant and well-regarded academic book on the subject. It's by Carla Girona called Night Journeys, The Power of Dreams in Transatlantic Quaker Culture, University of Virginia Press in 2004. Uh, I was not able to read this book itself, but I read a couple of academic reviews of it to get a sense of its arguments and major themes. Uh, so one of the reviews I'm going to reference was by Robert Cox in the Journal of the Early Republic, uh, winter 2005, and the other was by Michelle Lisa Tarter in the Journal of Quaker Studies 2007. But before I get into this book directly, I think it'd be good to do a little bit of background on the Quakers. Uh, so the Quakers are officially known as the Religious Society of Friends, and this tradition was founded in England in the mid-17th century uh, by a man named George Fox. So I was reading about him in a book excerpt published in the New York Times by a historian named James Walvin. The book is called The Quakers, Money and Morals. And before going any further, I just have to note a physical detail Walvin includes in the description of George Fox, which is that he was described at the time as a man with hair like rat's tails. Hmm. I'm, I'm having trouble picturing that because rats' tails don't really look like hair. hair they yeah. are, by their very nature, hairless. Mm -hmm. Maybe he had kind of like a wet look and had kind of um, like white or grayish hair. Perhaps. It was an ambiguous evocation for me as well. But uh, I'll keep trying to picture it as we go on. So George Fox was born in 1624. He was the son of devout Puritan parents in Leicestershire, which is a city in the English Midlands. His father was a somewhat wealthy weaver. And in 1643, George Fox had an unpleasant experience seeing friends drinking alcohol at a local fair. And so the teenage Fox, after this experience, heard the voice of God Almighty telling him to leave home, abandon his friends, uh, abandon his family, and seek the truth. And after this, he spent several years sort of uh, itinerant, just uh, wandering the country uh, with his Bible in hand, seeking enlightenment of some sort, and apparently harassing local priests and ministers along the way. One example is in 1649, he was arrested and jailed for getting up in the middle of a church service in Nottingham and arguing with the minister about his interpretation of the Bible. Now, in defining Fox's early preachings and the, uh, and the Quakers' uh, early beliefs, it's kind of interesting because several sources I've read mention that they're more easily defined in opposition to other beliefs than in the positive substance of themselves. But uh, one thing seems to be that Fox's theology developed to 
include a belief in the necessity of inner spiritual rebirth. Uh, sometimes this is known as born-again theology. It was very much about uh, having the inner light of God or the inner light of Christ revealed within yourself and experiencing God directly. And uh, Fox also came to preach a message that was basically against the institutional structure of Christianity. Uh, it seems Fox's unique thesis was that you do not need a church or a congregation or a cleric to act as any kind of uh, intermediary or interpreter between you and God, that you should interact with God honestly and directly on your own terms. And I think already we can see how um, this is going to line up with the importance of dreams, the idea that there's some sort of direct communication. We saw that already with the you know, example of Fox having heard the voice of God. Um, and, and, uh, and, uh, and as we've been discussing already in this, this uh, series, there's this longstanding uh, human tradition of potentially interpreting dreams as such as well. That's right. So we will get there. But another thing I should note before we move on is that this is happening in England in the 1640s, which is the same time as the English Civil War or directly mm -hmm. after the English Civil War in the interregnum period. Uh, and this is a time of major change, uh, political, social, cultural upheaval in England. Uh, I want to read a brief passage from Walvin summarizing the cultural climate in England at the time. Quote, Fox was not alone in suffering turmoil in the 1640s. The entire nation was racked by personal and social agitations that had been whipped up by a bloody and vengeful civil war. That decade and the interregnum years of the 1650s formed what Christopher Hill has described as the greatest upheaval in English history. Old assumptions and beliefs, old certainties, were shattered by the convulsion of religious and political freedoms which had scarred most people in some way or other. The traditional acceptance that all English people belong to the national church and must worship as a matter of obligation was destroyed forever. And another feature uh, of this period that Walvin notes is that uh, this is a time when there was sudden dissolution of the strict censorship laws that had up until then controlled the the printed word. There was kind of a, a sudden explosion in different kinds of materials that could be disseminated in print, including books and tracts that advocated radical and unorthodox points of view in civil and religious life. Now, the people around George Fox when he was uh, uh, when he was traveling and preaching in the 1640s or 1650s, these would mostly include members of the Church of England, the mainstream Protestant church in England at the time, and also Puritans, uh, people who dissented from or at least wanted to reform the Church of England, largely on the grounds, sorry to oversimplify, but largely on the grounds that it was not removed enough from its Roman Catholic roots and not sufficiently based on sola scriptura, that Church of England was not Protestant enough. Hmm. Now, I mentioned that Fox was jailed uh, at least one time for interrupting a church meeting in Nottingham. He was jailed other times, I, I think, for blasphemy of various sorts. Fox made a lot of people angry, but he also won a lot of converts, if that's the right word. Uh, at least you could say he persuaded a lot of people uh, to see their, their relationship with God in, in his way. And his movement spread rapidly in England and also to the colonies in North America in the 1650s. In fact, the colony of Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn, who was a wealthy English Quaker, to serve as a safe haven for Quakers who were sometimes viciously persecuted in England. 
Now, once again, it's sometimes easier to say what Quakers don't believe than what exactly they do believe. But uh, though there's some variation, overall Quakers were known for rejecting hierarchy and rejecting the enforcement of orthodoxy in religious matters. And they were also known, though this might not have been a direct result of their theology, they were known for at certain times, but not always, having many members who supported radical social and political causes, such as pacifism, uh, advocating for women's rights, and the abolition of slavery. One thing that I think is worth noting with relevance to the role of dreaming is the format of Quaker religious meetings, which very often were just sort of like gatherings of of the religious society of friends, the friends that would typically allow anyone to speak, men and women alike, rather than just having a minister sermonize top down to the congregation. Yeah, and I believe Struve mentions that um, of the various uh, written dream reports that would survive uh, a lot of these were by women. That's right. Uh, so that brings us back to uh, a couple of the the reviews I wanted to talk about of that book by Carla Girona, Night Journeys, The Power of Dreams in Transatlantic Quaker Culture. Not only did early Quakers believe that dreams contained genuine revelatory prophetic content, the culture of Quakerism in the North American colonies was substantially downstream from the contents of dreams or what the, what they might call night journeys. I don't know why night journeys is just such a, a cool term <laughs> yeah. uh, for, for dreams. Uh, I mean, it just ties in with a lot of what we're talking about here, but then it also sounds like it could be like an 80s rock anthem. I don't know. Where the dream warriors don't want to dream no more, except they... Yeah. They did want to dream more. Uh, they, in fact, wanted to dream quite a lot and discuss all their dreams. So Cox sort of summarizes Girona's point as, uh, quote, dreams are not only models of culture, they are models for it. And I think a way of understanding this better is that while we today often think of dreams as simple reflections of individual internal psychological states and fixations, in the case of early American Quakerism during during the colonial and revolutionary periods, dreams were, quote, a collective endeavor. Uh, so the way I understand it is that for these 17th and 18th century Quakers, there was not only an emphasis placed on prophetic visions received through dreams, but the development of a collaborative prophetic dream culture where stories of other Quakers' prophetic dreams would be shared either in meetings or disseminated and circulated in print and then interpreted by the community. Cox writes, quote, more than any of their sectarian peers, Quakers developed a uniquely intense practice of recording and circulating their prophetic dreams within their meetings and beyond, each minister sharing in the discussion and interpretation, each dreamer and each auditor imparting his or her own shades of meaning, dialectically, collectively shaping a common Quaker identity in the process. So th this really captured my imagination because it, it's sort of describing a scenario where Dreams are such a common topic of conversation and a common subject of uh, printed material circulated within the Quaker community that they really kind of become a major facet of what the culture is. A lot of what it meant to be a Quaker in these times came from discussing dreams and what you thought you learned from them. Yeah, which is something that I, I honestly did not know about, uh, about Quakerism. Uh, um, until we started getting into this research here. But there's another side to it, too. 
which is, uh, as with many religions that contain the possibility of individual revelation, whether that's through dreams or visions or, you know, you believe in God speaks to you directly or whatever, there's evidence of a kind of push and pull effect with radical beliefs emerging through supposedly prophetic visions and dreams, and then a kind of taming or watering down process that comes through interpretation or through selective publication. So if you think about it, there's kind of an inherent tension between the wild individual agency of democratized dream revelation, again, thinking like somebody could have a dream and share it with us, and that may well be God himself speaking to us. There's that. And then there's also just like the practical necessities of maintaining a stable social group or the self-interested motives of leaders in maintaining their positions of power. Yeah, I think it's easy to imagine uh, for, for any of you out there who are a part of, say, uh, like a modern uh, Protestant or Catholic uh, denomination, like imagine going into church one day and um, it being announced, OK, from now on, uh, starting right now, everybody can have an input on what we believe and what our individual relationships with God happens to be. And also uh, a second part of that dreams count as well. Whatever's yes. happening in your dreams, bring that into the conversation. Like, I think for people who are who have not had had any either aspect of this be part of their religious and organized religious experience, that would seem chaotic. That would that you would wonder, well, does that mean that my faith is now going to be like a Wikipedia article where anyone can edit it and uh, mm -hmm. they can cite dreams, or is it going to be something to where organically something will emerge to sort of keep it in check, kind of like you see with many mainstream Wikipedia pages? But there's another layer of, of difficulty there, too, because it's not just like, oh, uh, William had this opinion about what we should believe, and that comes from William. Beliefs mm -hmm. potentially come directly from the divine. The creator of yes. the universe is telling you this through your dreams. Yeah, when anyone in a, in a given congregation, any given group, is is opened up to the like, direct communications from the divine, um, or, or you know, certainly things that are interpreted or reinterpreted or presented as such, uh, yeah, that brings a whole new weight to everything. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year 
equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Now, it's one thing if these supposed revelations are just about, uh, you, you know, theological beliefs, uh, understanding of the nature of Christ or something, not to say that's not important, but that's, you know, a, a different kind of subject matter than dream revelations supposedly from God that are things like maybe we should overthrow the government or maybe we should all stop going to work or something like that, where it turns out that a lot of these early dream revelations uh, in, in Quaker or Friends meetings uh, did have direct political connotations and direct political implications. There was often a tendency for dreams uh, of the early Quakers to be interpreted as granting license to revolt against church and state. And one thing documented in this book is that in response, influential Quaker ministers often kind of counteracted these radical uh, uh, explosions of, of dream revelation that, that threatened political or social stability by guiding collaborative dream work sessions and uh, by controlling the publication of prophetic dreams uh, to sort of like steer them toward different interpretations, often having more to do with individual morality and regulation of personal behavior rather than having these uh, radical political implications. And this was especially true, apparently, for the dreams of women. To illustrate this, I'm going to quote from the review by uh, Lisa Tarter now who writes, quote, At the beginning of the Quaker movement, such dreamings were experienced and expressed as apocalyptic prophesying. Replete with symbolic language, they promoted friends' religious enthusiasm, often attacked political leaders, and addressed contemporary issues. Similar to their public tradition of prophesying, 17th century friends shared their visions and dreams quite often and in public. Uh, but then, by the 18th century, there was a transition to a more corporate dream work within Quaker culture that was facilitated by leaders of specific Quaker groups who assumed control of the publishing of these dreams. Uh, and they regulated and sort of censored how dreams were discussed in Quaker print. 
Tartar writes, quote, No longer confrontational or enthusiastic, this newly shaped corpus of dreams sought to regulate Quaker behavior and self-discipline, was more introspective in nature, and focused on the individual, but extended to community-wide meaning. And so she says that leaders at the time uh, saw dreams as powerful tools that, like, if you selected the right ones to publish and share with other Quaker groups, and if you interpreted them the right way, they could be used to encourage unity among the friends to make everybody sort of like, you know, fit together and function well as a, as a social group. But you had to be careful to avoid uh, letting dream pro- uh, prophetic dreams rock the boat too much, basically. And this is interesting to me because it seems this would probably be the case for any religion that allows new beliefs or new theology to evolve from individual direct experiences that people have, whether that's they believe to be waking visions or uh, just sort of verbal revelations, God speaking to people or through dreams. There's always going to be this battle going on within a religious culture that believes in these kinds of revelations. Anyone can present the contents of their own mind and their own imagination as a kind of new scripture, carrying the terrifying authority of the Almighty, but then these dreams have to be, uh, quote, interpreted, and there will be various pressures guiding that process of interpretation, often trying to uh, resist the the radical authority that leaps like lightning out of the, the mind of a single parishioner. Yeah, this is fascinating. And I mean, you can even compare it too to situations where individual ideas and opinions uh, within a given movement um, or a given group, you know, are not tied to dreams and visions. But uh, but even in those situations, like say, like a protest environment, environment, like a protest movement, is there going to be uh, an effort to sort of amplify certain voices and demands within that group? Is there going to be an effort to uh, uh, to like to lessen the impact of other ideas, and then and then also how do you make it all actionable? Like what ultimately is the sort of the what are you going to end up nailing to the church doors? In other words, you know. Mm-hmm. Though it is interesting, yeah, that you bring up that like through publication and selective publication, there is kind of like a theological um, hierarchy that comes into play here. Uh, mm-hmm. determining exactly what sort of gets presented, what a- actually gets put forth for further discussion. Yeah, exactly. Um, Struve, in, uh, in her book, writes that uh, in, in the cases she covers, uh, including those um, uh, in, uh, early on involving uh, uh, Euro-American dream mystique, and also the example we'll get to here in a minute, um, there is ultimately a trichotomy of opinions concerning the nature of dreams fed by various influences, uh, including uh, philosophy, religious doctrine, and folklore. Um, and they are, one, dreams as residue of thought and or byproducts of bodily processes. We've just we've talked about that. The second area, dreams uh, is seen as being caused by demonic or satanic forces. And then three, in rare cases with exceptional individuals, they are divine visions or messages. And with the Quaker example, of course, we see item number three taken and... Um, and democratized. Yeah. It's no longer the uh, the chosen few who have the vision. It's everyone who has insight into the vision. Everyone who's who's potentially hearing the words of God. Yeah, that is interesting. And it seems like so. Struve is saying with those the, that trichotomy you mentioned, basically that every place you look in history, there is sort of a three way understanding of dreams, where there's some understanding that they might just be 
essentially natural. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing much to them. They're either something arising from the digestion of beef in your gut or uh, they're just what you were thinking about in the day. Second thing is they're from an evil spiritual entity. And the third is they're from a good spiritual entity. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, yeah, it seems like the Quakers really opened the floodgates on option number three. Yeah, and it does make me wonder, like today, are we are we still living in an age where predominantly the floodgates are open on item one? Like, like the are we? And you know, can I? You know, this doesn't cover everybody. You're going to still have have certain um, areas and parts of society where two and three are going to have more weight. But for the most part, yeah, do we just sort of default to well? You know, um, I shouldn't have eaten that potato or I shouldn't have like in my case uh, just the other night, shouldn't have watched that uh, that horror movie uh, messed up my dreams all night long, gave me a terrible night of sleep. Um, but I'm not blaming it on a satanic force. Mm-hmm. But Struva chimes in on this idea of like, uh, you know, prophetic dreams and how they're managed. And she says that, yeah, it then falls to authority figures to employ these categories as needed to, quote, protect their respective creeds against challenges to orthodoxy from the random mental effusions of neophytes. So that means that, you know, in in more sort of balanced situations, if someone's saying, hey, God spoke to me in a dream, then you would have someone in a position to say so, come forward and, and say, well, I don't know that that's God's voice. Perhaps that is the potato you ate, or, you know, there are other reasons we have the dreams that we have, and perhaps that's what it was, or even potentially dipping into number two and saying, you know, there are other forces that may influence our dreams, and they are not all divine. Now, one last thing I think is worth emphasizing about the Quakers is I think Struve selects them because they do conform to her general idea that times and places where there is a sudden um, uh, a sudden profusion of writing about dreams, this often coincides with times of extreme uh, social and cultural change where there's a lot of like uh, churn in who has power and there's a lot of uncertainty and anxiety, which again would have been true about England in the 1640s. This, that, remember that passage from Walvin mm-hmm. about like it being the greatest time of upheaval in English history. Yeah, yeah. So you can definitely see those pressures in place. And then, yeah, and then not only on on the British side of the ocean, but then once they get to the New World, like, yeah, there are all sorts of new stresses and problems. Like, it is not... Uh, it is not just this world of uh, of new opportunity. Obviously, uh, there are there's you know an indigenous population. There are all these other groups. There's just sort of the uh, you know the the potentially harsh nature of the reality of uh, of, of uh, colonial life and so forth. Now, with all of that in mind, it's it's interesting that one of the other main examples uh, that uh, she makes in the book that Struve makes concerns Sufism in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and as we we get into this here and discuss it, I think uh, it'll become uh, like more obvious how this particular example falls in line with what we've been discussing, but also some of the things that seem to make it unique by understanding everything correctly. So dreams are of great importance in Islam, especially as referenced in the Quran and the revelations of the Prophet Muhammad. In Sufism, a more mystical branch of Islam, dreams are even more important given the emphasis on, quote, direct experience of the divine and on achieving ecstatic union with God through dreams, visions, and trance, unquote. The interest in dreams was, according to Struve, generally prognostic, and there were various manuals for dream interpretation, but they also probed their dreams and journaled the contents of their dreams as a way of seeking, quote, um, 
indications of their current spiritual state, uh, unquote, which, uh, you know, to a certain extent, like that kind of jives with the way we see dreams today, right? Um, Though often, I guess, in a non-spiritual sense, like you could look at your dreams and you could learn something perhaps about the state of your own mind uh, if you had, you know, the ability or the tools to sort of dig through um, like the the nonsense uh, that is inherent in our dreams. Mm-hmm. But again, in, in, in Sufism, particularly Ottoman Sufism here, according to Struve, dreams were seen as sacred bestowals rather than subjective. And it all contributed to an intense intellectual focus on the contents of dreams under the Ottoman Empire. Intellectuals of the day looked to dreams for solutions, for inspiration, and also for introspection. Quote, Every change in daily life was believed to have a counterpart in dreams or to possess an otherworldly dimension. Hmm. So I did a bit more reading on the subject of uh, Sufi Ottoman dreaming, and according to scholar Osgen Felik in 2023, quote, the study of dreams in the Ottoman and greater Islamic worlds is still in its early emergent stages, unquote. So it seems like that's an important caveat to make here that there is, it seems to be quite a bit more on all of this for ac- academics to consider and to, um, and to analyze. Mm-hmm. Now, Felic had previously edited a volume titled Dreams and Visions in Islamic Society, in which Alexander D. Dinesh shares that the Arab mystic Ibn al-Arabi, who lived uh, 1165 through 1240, suggested that, quote, the only reason God placed sleep in the animate world was so that everyone might know that there is another world similar to the sensory world. Oh, that's interesting. Though I wonder if I'm interpreting this right. So it would mean that under uh, Ibn al-Arabi's view that God gave us dreams so we would know that the material world is not all there is, that there is another world and dreams are like one demonstration of that. Yeah, yeah, which is which is quite quite fascinating to see this stress, especially. I mean, I can't help but think about things that I've uh, read in the past concerning, say, witchcraft persecution in Europe, and the idea that, like, that this um, this world of uh, of the alleged occult was perhaps a focus for witchcraft persecutors because it gave them some idea of like, here is the supernatural world, and if the infernal version of that is real, then so is the divine. But here, the stress seems to be like, look no further than the world of dreams. Like, that is kind of the proof uh, uh, right there. Hmm. Again, if I'm understanding this correctly. But uh, according to uh, uh, to Ibn al-Arabi here, the dream state allows one to probe mysteries of God and creation that are normally quite invisible to us. Dinesh describes this view as one detailing dreams as an instrument of cognition that enable people to better understand not not only the inner workings of the waking world, but to better understand the next world as well. For as um, Ibn al-Arabi would frequently quote, uh, the prophet said that people are asleep and when they die, they awake. So dreams are like this, this hidden window. Uh, now, the author stresses that while not all Muslims of the time would have agreed with Ibn al-Arabi on this, they would at least still value the importance of dreaming and of waking visions in the Muslim life. Mm-hmm. Pre-modern Muslims, Dinesh writes, saw dreams as things that revealed not only hidden personal insights, but hidden aspects of the wider universe, things otherwise hidden, um, citing the words of the prophet that, that uh, with his death, tidings 
of prophecy would end, but, quote, true dreams would endure. And uh, with this in mind, believers in the Sufi school of Islam saw dreams as a kind of a font of continued revelations. It's kind of like the main font of revelation is is now closed. It's mm-hmm. the, the message is complete, but there's kind of this continued signal that will be uh, open to those um, you know who are uh, who, who will listen to it, who can you know receive these true dreams. Mm-hmm. So Dinesh writes that the result is kind of twofold here uh, for this particular example. First of all, a devout Muslim could expect the guidance of God in dreams. And two, Sufis in particular made broad use of dreams and dream lore, quote, from training Sufi disciples and prognostication to confirming the special status and authority of individual Sufi masters, as well as authenticating spiritual genealogies and mystical orders. At the same time, Dinesh points out that dreams and visions were and still are seen by Muslims as not only cosmological and social, but also reflections of the dreamer's inner world, quote, expressions of both inner and outer voices. So again, coming back to this, this, this idea that, yeah, dreams may reveal things about the world unseen, they may reveal things about the future, but also they may reveal things about yourself, which again, that kind of compares rather favorably with sort of the uh, the secular way that it um, that many people certainly in the West view dreams today. Mm-hmm. So I'm understanding this as the difference being that uh, many Muslims would view dreams not as a source of sort of new theology that would change anything re- uh, revealed in, in the Quran or anything like that, but that it would offer sort of specific guidance that is more particular to your time and place in history. Yes. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. And now, uh, as with our example with the Quakers, um, you know, same here. If you have uh, uh, have a particular expertise and background in uh, in Islam or in uh, in Sufism, you know, we would love to to hear from you and get your 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 individual take on all of this. But based on on what we've been reading uh, in researching here, yeah, it does seem like dreams important in Islam broadly um, with a heightened importance in Sufism. And then during the Ottoman Empire, uh, particularly, so particular focus of time and place, though it is kind of a broader period of time, we'll get into details on that in just a second, um, even more focus on the power of dreams. Mm -hmm. Now, Dinesh also drives home, though, that, yeah, it is important to note that dream cultures will vary from one Muslim society and, and, and one time to another. So, yeah, don't again, don't take any of this as meaning like all all Muslims, all Sufis, uh, etc. believe this about any given dreams. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Now, the book I reference covers different topics under this umbrella of dreaming, but there's another author in it, um, Gottfried Hagen, who singles out Ottoman dream culture as well. Uh, I just wanted to share a quick quote uh, from Hagen on this, quote, Throughout the pre-modern era, and probably much longer, people in the Ottoman Empire were firmly convinced of the reality of dreams. Now, uh, another interesting thing to think about, especially with this this particular case, is that, you know, naturally one sees the importance of dream culture reflected in folklore as well, you know, because a lot of this is concerning, I guess, the, it's my, my understanding anyway, the like the upper um, parts of, um, of, of like the, the Sufi um, system at the time. But beneath all that, you're also going to have sort of underlying folklore, right? That is, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming working both ways, like folklore influenced by the prominent dream culture of the day, but also perhaps contributing to the general energy of it as well. Mm -hmm. I looked at a a paper titled Dream Motif in Turkish Folk Stories and Shamanistic Initiation, and it discusses some examples of this, such as uh, a motif of of a young man or woman having an important dream, either after a traumatic event or after they pray to God for help following such an event. And then in the dream that follows, a holy man or holy men, and then sometimes it's a maiden, offers the youth a cup of wine to drink. And this is sometimes described as like a love potion. They predict his future love or or her future love. They give them a pseudonym under which to write poetry, and they offer guidance in the future. And then there's additional dream imagery that occurs in this motif, including the um, uh, like the, the the burning of, of the body, like your your you know, the mortal body in the dream burns away, and they awake with uh, uh, with all this inspiration brought on by the dream. Now they're inspired to write poetry, uh, inspired by both this dream cup of wine and also inspired by God. The author writes, "Quote: The dream motif complex in Turkish folk stories provides a valuable case to illustrate how a ceremonial rite, a shamanistic initiation rite." turns into a fiction motif through long social and historical development. There is a striking resemblance between the initiation of a candidate into a shamanistic profession and the dream motif complex which initiates the candidate into the new life of an artist and lover. And the author here links these folkloric stories, including the one uh, that that I just shared and also some that are discussed elsewhere in in this particular write-up, to magico-religious life of the Turco-Mongol shamans. 
But this is not particular to the the Ottoman Muslim period in Turkey. No, no. But though the uh, uh, the, the particular dream motif that is shared here, uh, I believe, has some like clear Islamic cultural cultural um, uh, labeling, like the way that the um, uh, that the holy men are presented. Um, mm-hmm. They're presented, at least in this version of it, as uh, Islamic holy men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I bring it up, though, just to sort of um, try to dig at and explore the idea that, uh, yeah, that w- any given culture, you're going to still have, like, these other folkloric energies going on as well uh, that are going to have uh, certain stresses regarding, uh, let's say, the reality of dreams, the cause of dreams, and the prophetic nature of dreams as well. But uh, to come back to the, the Ottoman dynasty specifically, which uh, ultimately runs what, 1299 through 1912, um, according to Struve, one has a, a strong dream tradition of Sufi Islam, the influence of Turkish shamanism, and by the 16th century, one sees a particularly strong Ottoman Empire, quote, as the empire was brought by successive conquests to nearly ring the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, also on top of that, the prominence of the Sufi Halveti order and also growing excitement in the Muslim world over, quote, anticipation of the appearance of a messiah, uh, the Mahdi, who would prepare the world for Judgment Day, a millennial belief affirmed in Sufism. So, if I'm understanding everything correctly here, Struve seems to outline less of an external stress-based inward gaze and one more, like, deeply, deeply rooted in religion and culture, and then heightened by theological prominence and millennial excitement. So it was a like a high time of dream reports, dream journaling, mythologizing dream lore, and consultation of one's own dreams for daily guidance. Struve uh, quotes the modern historian Dror uh, Zaevi on all of this, um, who is a historian uh, with a particular expertise in, uh, in Ottoman culture. Quote, Ottoman culture may be described as a dream culture in the sense that, true or imaginary, every change in daily life was believed to have had a counterpart in dreams or to possess an otherworldly dimension. People seem to have used dreams for introspection, to interpret the past, to anticipate the future, and to calculate their moves. Dream lore was a unifying discourse, uniting people in a bond of shared experience, knitting together insights from politics, medicine, and religion. Oh, well, there is a kind of uh, similarity with the the Quaker example mm-hmm. of the emergence of a, a sort of collective dream culture in a way where people would share and discuss their dreams and the meaning of dreams. And there was uh, it was more than just like an individual private experience that you have believing that it reflects the, you know, the contents of your own mind, that th- there was something bigger and more collective to it. Yeah, this yeah, I was really taken by that as well. A unifying discourse, which it, there's so many things that are different about the the Ottoman example and the Quaker example, but this does seem to be the thing that they both have in common in their own ways. And and, it, and again, both in both cases, it's so different from the way we think about our dreams today. Like since we often have this idea that it is at best this kind of uh, thing we extrude that has, if you tease it apart enough, going to have some sort of uh, insight uh, or uh, about our own inner world it's the kind of thing where if you imagine yourself going to work if you're you know among your coworkers and go like hey everybody you want to hear my, about my dream last night like that would that would feel more like a social faux pas right that would seem like something you should not do like nobody wants to hear that or perhaps you're oversharing by mentioning it 
you know, unless you have something, I guess, uh, just the right calibration to share. Whereas in these accounts, like sharing your dreams was was just was part of the culture. And it brought people together rather than making them seem like, you know, the office weirdo as as it might be in, 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 in today's world in the West. All right. On that note, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out. But we'll be uh, we'll be back for at least one more episode dealing with this whole uh, topic of um, of dream mystique and dream fascination and dream culture. So uh, be sure to tune in on Thursday for that. In the meantime, you can check out other core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.